Restaurants open and close all the time in New York City. It's just one example of how fluid life is in Gotham. Your favorite Mexican joint might be here today, but there's no guarantee it'll be open tomorrow. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, here today, but will it be gone tomorrow? We'll hear about efforts to save a more than 100-year-old firehouse in Manhattan's Greenwich Village. Chat with a Brooklyn man who blogs about the city's lost history. Check the pulse of the city's mom-and-pop record shops. And find out why New York City Audubon is concerned about the future of some birds in the Big Apple. That's all coming up on Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. New York is a city rich in history, and there are a lot of people who want to keep it that way. Andrew Berman is with the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. The group has been fighting to preserve the architectural heritage and cultural history of the village since 1980. I recently met with Andrew to talk about the group's latest concerns. Andrew, describe for us where we are right now and what is directly across the street from us. We're standing in front of uh, Fire Patrol House Number 2 here on West 3rd Street in Greenwich Village. Uh, The Fire Patrol House is a vestige of a little-known but wonderful historic institution that actually preceded municipal fire departments. Uh, Back 100 or more years ago, cities didn't have fire departments. Insurance companies did, and it was a way of preventing damage to properties that they were insuring. This institution is actually believed to have been founded by Benjamin Franklin in the 18th century, and every city had one. Uh, Fast forward to 2008, and New York is the only city that still has one left, and there's only three of these houses left, one in Greenwich Village, uh, one in Midtown, and one in downtown Brooklyn, and uh, we're very worried about the fate of these buildings because the uh, uh, fire patrol uh, by the New York Board of Underwriters is being sold, um, and presumably the site will be developed if that's the case. What do you think would become of this site? It's hard to know, but certainly uh, under existing zoning and lacking landmark protections, they could tear this down uh, and build a much larger building. Uh, NYU, right across the street here, could build a very large dorm. So the chances of this wonderful historic building uh, that's been here for over 100 years and that tells the story of the development of New York City as a great metropolis um, could easily be erased uh, overnight. Why doesn't this building have landmark status? There are a lot of historic buildings in New York that don't have landmark status, but in this case, we're certainly trying to change that, both in terms of uh, bringing the individual threat to this building to the attention of the city's Landmarks Preservation Commission, which makes those determinations, as well as bring the the entire neighborhood of which this is a part, known as the South Village, also to the attention of the Landmarks Preservation Commission and asking them to designate a historic district that would cover the entire neighborhood. Either type of designation would save this building. NYU, of course, is right here, as you mentioned. Now, the university has promised to be a better neighbor and to work with groups like yours when it expands. They have, and, you know, they're talking the talk. We're going to see if they walk the walk as well. Um, But we take nothing for granted, and whether it's NYU or a real estate developer or another institution, we really don't want to take risks with a great building like this, which it would be a shame to lose. If this fire patrol were to move out, 
and the building, though, was landmarked. What do you think could become of it? There's so many wonderful things that a building like this could be reused for. Um, it would make a great theater, and one of the things that we're seeing in our neighborhood is the loss of the great sort of off-Broadway alternative theaters. Um, it could be converted into uh, other kinds of performance spaces, a restaurant. could even be converted into housing. Um, but without landmark protections, what's more likely to happen is it gets torn down, or, as happened with the Sullivan Street Playhouse around the corner, you would see the entire facade ripped off and replaced with reflective glass, with a big sign saying new luxury condos going up on it. That's the result we don't want to see happen. Would you also be concerned that the neighbors here would also sell out and there goes the entire block? Sure. I mean, if this is put on the market, then uh, without a doubt, realtors are going to be approaching the other property owners trying to amass as large a parcel as possible. So you really want to, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. um, And that's really what we're looking for here. Just a few blocks from here on Bleecker Street, there is a stretch of buildings that you're also very concerned about. Yes. uh, On Bleecker Street, there's a few buildings that we're really concerned about. One is an 1860s uh, row house. The other is uh, uh, three buildings that were built in the early 19th century. Two of them are wooden. They were actually originally uh, coach houses, which means that back when streetcars ran through the neighborhood and were the main form of public transportation, this is where the operator of the house lived, and this is where the the, um, route was conducted from. And believe it or not, it's actually still there, although you wouldn't know it necessarily by looking at it. But it's a great piece of the neighborhoods and the city's history, and we're worried about its future as well. Aren't there also connections to a historical painting? Yes, uh, that building is believed by many to have been the inspiration for Edward Hopper's iconic painting, Early Sunday Morning. Um, Even if you don't know the title, you probably know a wonderful Edward Hopper painting of a two-story structure early in the morning with the sun rising on it, with that rich red brick and the barber pole in front. It's such an image, it's such an evocative image of a New York from a time gone by. Well, in this case, it's actually a piece of New York that we believe is still here, and we certainly want to keep it here. For the people who say that groups like yours just stand in the way of progress, what do you say to them? Well, you know, I think that part of what makes New York so appealing and why it's continued to prosper um, and flourish is, in fact, the character of it and the history and the many layers um, that are here. I mean, we could easily knock down all of New York and build a series of shopping malls and, you know, uh, high-rises and look like Houston. Um, New York is never going to be a better Houston than Houston. Um, New York, its best bet for its future is to be the best New York possible, and to do that, that involves holding on to those things that make it so special, so individual, so unlike any other city in New York. People who come to New York come here because it doesn't feel like the rest of the United States, because it has such vitality, so many layers, so much um, uh, individuality and diversity, um, and that's increasingly hard to come by in the rest of this country. What would you say have been your sweetest victories and your worst losses? Sure. Uh, Well, we've had some wonderful victories. I mean, we got the Greenwich Village Historic District expanded for the first time in its 35-year existence. Um, We got most of the meatpacking district, but not all of it landmarked. Um, We've been able to get several early 19th, late uh, 18th century federal-style houses uh, landmarked. Um, We're working with folks in NoHo to get the NoHo Historic District extended. You know, some of our defeats thus far, but, you know, it's not over till it's over, has been the 
Trump Soho Condo Hotel, which the city um, insisted um, is legal, even though it's such a clear violation of the zoning for that neighborhood, and there's going to be a case in court uh, next week, actually, on the 27th about that. Um, we, at the southern end of this neighborhood, we lost this wonderful building called the Tunnel Garage, which is one of the first Art Deco buildings ever built in New York. It was this beautiful building with this terracotta medallion with a picture of a Model T or some other early kind of automobile going through the nearby Holland Tunnel. Um, and we fought very hard to try to get the commission to save that. Unfortunately, they were not willing to. That's the kind of defeat that spurs us onward because we don't want to see the same thing happen with some of these wonderful buildings. It's funny when you stand outside of a building like this, the fire patrol, and you watch people walk back and forth, not too many people probably even know what the fate of this building could be. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, you'd never know that this, uh, the fate of this is hanging in the balance. But I'll tell you, when we let people know, they are uh, very, very, very concerned. I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of a, it's a cornerstone of the neighborhood. I mean, it's interesting. Most people don't even realize that it's not the fire department because it looks like an old firehouse, but it has this really unique and interesting history. And in spite of it not being the firehouse, uh, many of the guys here uh, were involved in 9-11. So, you know, it shares a lot of that uh, heroic history. But typically, Typically with buildings and pieces of our history being threatened, you don't find out about it until it's too late, until they're gone or until the the wrecking ball is basically at the front door, and then it's usually too late to do anything about it. Andrew Berman, thanks so much for your time. Sure, thanks very much. Andrew Berman is with the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. The village is home to a number of long-standing record shops, including Bleaker Bob's. But in the age of the digital download, a lot of people are questioning how much longer mom-and-pop record stores will survive. I checked in with some shopkeepers to see how they're doing. The state of New York record stores themselves, I don't think it's been that the stores themselves have decreased so much in what they've been selling or in their revenue, but the rents here have become astronomical. My name is John DeSalvo, and we're in Bleaker Bob's Records, the legendary Bleaker Bob's Records in downtown Manhattan in the village. Over the past several years, there's been a rash of closings, and almost every closing has been because the rents were just too high. I know most of the owners who went out of business, and they all basically said the same thing. A couple of them went online, a couple of them just gave up and decided they would do something else. The labels were never really focused on mom and pop record stores. But with the advent of the large labels having big problems, there's been a lot of small labels, and the small labels obviously are geared towards independent stores. It's actually helped a lot of places. We have a very big metal clientele, and certainly those metal labels are always you know, very happy to send us promos, give us posters, uh, anything that they can do to help. Fortunately, any place that's been around for a long period of time usually has a customer base and people who are not necessarily familiar with the neighborhood will always try and find you, especially if you've got a big enough reputation that you know people know who you are. But you still have to cater to different special interest groups to keep in business because you know things that I sold 20 years ago for a lot of money I can't sell today and things that were worth nothing 20 years ago are now worth a lot of money. Oh, the times, they are a-changing. I'm Stuart Upchurch, and we're at A1 Records in the East Village. I come from a background where I did sell new music, and that became a challenge in New York because just the economics of it. You have a small mom-and-pop business. There isn't a big markup in records or music at all, so you know, I have the challenge to pay that rent, and it's a little hard to do. You've got to do it for love. I don't think many people do it to make a gold mine because the gold mine isn't there. 
We have anywhere from people bringing their children and exposing them to older rock groups. Uh, I mean, last week we had this kid, he must have been all like seven. He was so amazed that he could find a lot of like 70s rock stuff. I'm looking at this kid, he, you know, he's barely in grade school and he's digging through the crates and he has this, he has that, and then he collects. And so I think it's something people sort of pass on to their kids. Anthony works in the grocery store. My name is Rich Kim from Etheria. We're on 66 Avenue A in the East Village between 4th and 5th Street. Usually every other day or so, somebody comes in the store and asks me in a very concerned way, how are you guys doing here? It makes me feel like I should be worried more than I am. The main consumer of pop music has really changed from buying CD albums to downloading songs. But I think people who are serious about music are still buying CDs because they want the whole album. I've been carrying records for a long time, and 15 years ago I think people were saying that that was a dying format. And it still is a dying format, but it's never going to go away, and I think CDs will find a place like that. There'll be a place for CDs. There'll be a, a place for people who want to buy CDs. Labels could probably do more to support record stores. I'd like to see that happen. New CDs at a lower price, doing things to support stores uh, in terms of advertising. And there's so many ways that they could contribute to keeping the store alive. Record shops in Manhattan aren't the only ones threatened by rising rents and changing technology. Casa Amadeo in the South Bronx is also struggling to stay afloat. It's said to be the oldest Latin music store in New York City. It opened in 1941 under the name Casa Hernandez. Music composer Mike Amadeo bought the place in 1969. In 1969, the store started to, uh, he started to do uh, bad in the store. Everything went wrong. And I decided, you know, it's time for me to move on. And at the time, this store was uh, being, you know, they, they, they wanted to sell out. When I heard about it, I didn't have the money to buy it because I was working for $80 a week at the time, and I didn't have any money. A compadre of mine, you know, my father's uh, godfather, offered me a loan, and that's how come I became, in 1969, the owner of uh, Casa Hernandez, then, which I changed to Casa Madeo. It says Casa Madeo, Antigua Casa Hernandez. You're honoring the memory of the folks that came before that's you. That's correct. That's the whole idea. I'm sure this store has changed quite a bit. There are a lot of CDs. We still see cassettes, but we still have LPs in this store. Well, the thing is that uh, when I first came here, there was only 78s. There were no 45s. Although Casa Alegre around the corner had a whole stack of uh, 45s, but the lady here didn't want, I guess she was trying to sell the store, and she didn't want to, you know, buy any more merchandise. She never got into the 45s. So I changed the whole, the whole system. I took all the 78s, that whole wall that you see there, I took it in the back, back there and uh, placed them the same way I had them here. I placed them in the back, and then I started with a new, you can see the small sections there for the 45s. We're eventually, you see what happened, now we have CDs there. And the one that really did damage to the industry of the music business was the CD. 
once the CD came out, once they started selling those uh, machines, everybody's burning out. They, they just buy one record and they make 10 copies, and, and the whole family has, for, one, for the price of one, you got 10 records in the house. And what about downloading now and digital music? That, well, that's even worse. That's even worse. So how's business today for you? Well, business is, uh, is going, <laughs> like I said, before the store was selling, you know, thousands of uh, the 45 era, I used to sell because I, I used to control most of the 45s for the U-Box. Everybody that would uh, had a, companies like Paramount Music, they used to come to me and order two, three, four hundred forty-fives at a time. Every time they went to a, a social club or a bar or a restaurant, they would put in their jukebox, they would come to me, get a hundred records from me. And this was big money at the time. But once the CD came in, people don't come to me now. They go straight to the distributor, and they buy cheaper. They, they pay the same price that I pay. So that's how come I lost all that business. It cut down my, my, my sales in half. From, I, I went from $6,000 a week to 3000 and that was it. And then, the, you know, the increase in, on the rent and everything else, everything is more expensive now. So uh, I'm just surviving, and I'm trying to keep my old music, which is the one that has me here. If it wasn't for uh, the music that I sell here of uh, Felipe Rodriguez, Trio Vega Bajeño, the oldies, but goodies, and if it wasn't for that, you know, I, I would have to close. So who are your customers? Who are the folks coming in most, here to buy? Most of the people that come here, they don't come from the neighborhood. Most of my customers come from uh, New Jersey, Long Island, way out there, maybe uh, two hours away from the stores, uh, Pennsylvania, Boston. When I see one of those guys walking through the store, I know that I got at least $100 and register in a few minutes after that, you know? because those are the people that come in here and spend their money. People in the neighborhood, they go somewhere else, I guess. Mikey, do you think it's ironic at all? You've weathered the bad storms in the Bronx. You've lasted through the 1970s and 80s when people abandoned the Bronx. The Bronx was burning. And now digital music and CDs are potentially putting an end to your business. That is correct. So what do you think? What do you think about the future of your store? How long do you think you'll be able to stay afloat? Well, I'm, I'm day by day, you know. I'm taking it day by day. Mike Amadeo owns what's said to be the oldest Latin music store in New York City. Casa Amadeo is located at 780 Prospect Avenue in the South Bronx. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Whether it's a shuttered record store or a bar that went belly up, you're bound to find it listed on a blog called Lost City. I recently chatted with its creator, a Brooklyn man who goes by the name of Brooks of Sheffield. I started the blog two years ago after a favorite bar of mine called McHale's uh, closed. It was in Times Square at the corner of 46th and 8th. It was this old theater bar where all the stagehands would hang out. And um, the landlord just sold the building to a uh, developer who wanted to um, build a condo high-rise. It's there now. I believe it's called Platinum or some such monstrous name. And uh, McHale's is gone. It was one of the last such bars of... uh, of its type in Times Square. Obviously, Times Square has just changed. 
uh, irrevocably in the past 10 years. I was so incensed by this that I decided to start the blog to record these kind of uh, tragedies and travesties. You maintain your blog under the name Brooks of Sheffield. That's not your real name. No, Brooks of Sheffield's from David Copperfield. It's a uh, at one point, um, a man uses it to refer to David Copperfield what he doesn't want David Copperfield to know he's talking about him. So, um, yeah, it's a name that I've chosen because uh, my profession is a freelance journalist, and I write for a myriad of publications. And sometimes uh, publishers, uh, you know, well, they have their attitudes and they have their opinions, and they might be upset or angry by some of the things I post on the blog, and I need my employment, so I don't want to risk it. Are you a native New Yorker? No, I'm not. Um, I, but I have lived here for 20 years in various neighborhoods, um, Harlem, Lower East Side, and then, you know, most recently in the uh, Carroll Gardens area. Why don't you set up where we are this morning? Right now we are outside the Brooklyn Inn. This is a really amazing old building. Yes, um, we're in Cobble Hill, or on the, we're on the border of Cobble Hill and Borham Hill. Um, it's the, the Brooklyn Inn. It's one of those old-time bars that are fast disappearing, um, the kind, you know, where men just went in to drink, and that's what they did. And um, it's got a great old wooden bar. It's got high ceilings. It's got mirrors. And um, it's just stood here forever. I used to have this old landlord. He was a longshoreman down uh, at the Navy Pier, and he used to tell me about coming to the Brooklyn Inn. For the longest time, it had no sign at all. You just knew it was here. Now there's a small thing that says Brooklyn Inn, and um, this is the kind of place that I'm afraid is going to be um, disappearing. Sort of a place like McHale's, much older than McHale's, but um, some other places like this are in danger, like the P&G Tavern on the, uh, on the Upper West Side, and, of course, Chumley's, the old speakeasy in Greenwich Village, which um, kind of collapsed last April and probably will never come back again. Nobody's stepping up to the plate on that one. I was actually looking at your blog and looking at the threatened landmarks on there. You have listed Astroland, the Chelsea Hotel. You mentioned Chumley's. That's on here. The Community Bookstore, Katz's Deli, and the list goes on from there. I wonder if I should move Chumley's to the one that's already gone. Yeah, it's amazing the things that are being threatened. I mean, Astroland was supposed to close this past summer, but it got a brief uh, reprieve. It will be again, back again next summer. Uh, Chelsea Hotel seems to have changed hands, and they recently got rid of the old-time caretaker, and a lot of people think that they want to turn it into, um, you know, a place where expensive people live. Katz's Deli, the owners have hinted, you know, that if the right man comes along with the right price, they could sell out. I mean, these places, once they're gone... They'll never come back. They'll never come back. I mean, and one thing that New York has over other cities in America, almost all of the cities, except perhaps Chicago, San Francisco, New Orleans, is history. And if we get rid of the history, I mean, why are we any different? Why would people want to live here? What's, what's the point? If the cityscape, if the streets look very much like what you might find in, uh, I don't know, Cincinnati. Your most recent blog includes some talk about the red pasta sauce restaurants in New York City. Yes, um, these places are closing. Uh, there's another one on Court Street here in Carroll Gardens called Casa Rosa. It looks like it will be sold. Um, and then another one that's out in, uh, I believe, it, uh, Richmond Hill. These kind of places, uh, they're sort of earmarks of you know, the history of the neighborhoods, You know, in this case that there used to be a heavy Italian population. What a lot of people don't understand about 
people like me and blogs like mine is, you know, we always do seem to be complaining. Indeed, we are. And they say we just complain for the sake of it, you know, and we don't like any progress. It's not true. You just have to look around and see what is being called progress these days. The things that are replacing these things, these great things that are leaving are not worth it. They're not better. They're not things that are going to be valued in 50 years by the people of the future. And, and that's what we get angry about. Brooks of Sheffield, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You can find Brooks of Sheffield's blog at lostnewyorkcity.blogspot.com. Pigeons are far from a threatened species in New York City. They're all over the place, quite frankly. But other birds in the Northeast aren't as lucky. Joining me now on the phone to talk about birds on the brink is Glenn Phillips. He's the executive director of the New York City Audubon. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning. How long is the list of endangered birds here in the Northeast? There are about 30 or 40 species that are in trouble. They're not all endangered. Some of them are merely threatened or declining, but they're all species that we would call of conservation concern. What does that mean exactly? Well, that means that either their populations are very small, that is, there are just a few numbers of them. For example, piping plovers, which are a a federally listed endangered or threatened species, there are only about 6,000 of the birds in the world. That's not a lot. For other species like golden-winged warblers, there are over 200,000 of them, but their numbers are declining dramatically. And so, you know, 20 years ago, there were half a million of them, and now there are only 200,000, and that's a huge drop in numbers. The piping plover is the bird we see along the shore, right? Right, yeah, they're, they're familiar to anybody who, or at least the, the concept of them is familiar to anyone who goes to the beach, because you've seen the exclosures and enclosures that uh, protect the nesting birds. Although, because the birds are small and and well camouflaged, many people who go to the beach never actually see them. Why is that bird in trouble? Piping plovers are in in trouble because they nest on the same beaches that we like to recreate on. And they're particularly vulnerable because when they start nesting, no one's at the beach. So the birds arrive at this beautiful, empty beach and say, this is a perfect place to nest, find a mate, build their nest, lay their eggs, and then suddenly the beachgoers arrive just before the chicks hatch. And so the the human disturbance, both from people accidentally stepping on them, people allowing their dogs and or cats to disturb the nest, and also the waste that people bring with them attracts um, the plover's most dangerous predator, uh, which are seagulls. You also mentioned the warbler. Where do we find this bird? Golden-winged warblers tend to nest in the mountains, uh, not far from the city. So they nest in in Connecticut and um, and in the the Catskills. They don't actually nest in the city, but we frequently see them as they migrate through. They spend their winters in the tropics and they fly through New York City on their way. And so they're faced with a different set of challenges. Um, there, you know, changes to the landscape, uh, both in when they in their wintering grounds and in their nesting sites, have really dramatically impacted their ability to reproduce successfully. And the biggest challenge is that changes to forests, as old farms have become first scrubland and then forest, um, it has created a, a patchwork of habitat, which has allowed its close relative, the blue-winged warbler, to move into its territory. And so now the blue-winged warblers are mixing with golden-winged warblers, and that has dramatically reduced their reproductive success. 
What about within city limits? What are we seeing? There aren't really any endangered songbirds that nest in the city, but there are a lot of, of declining birds that do. The wood thrush, which is, to me, is summer in New York City, actually. It's, uh, having spent my summers in parks in New York City, I come to think of summer as the sound of the wood thrush. I can't even quite describe its call. It's so unusual. They're kind of haunting melodies in the treetops. And while they're still here in New York City, you know, their numbers have dropped from something like 10 million birds to half that. Is it a pollution problem? It's a combination of changes to the landscape at various different places. So it's not just here. You know, here in New York City, um, the loss of open space as the city has gotten developed over the last hundred years has had a pretty significant impact. The region surrounding the changes from as suburban sprawl has spread into former farmland and woodlands, um, that's impacted the success of the species. And then also, again, in Central and South America, where these birds spend the winter, changes to the way that land is used there has also impacted their success. It really matters how we as North Americans uh, work with our colleagues in the South. The birds that I notice most around New York City are the common house sparrow and another bird. It's a black bird with white specks on it. I'm not sure of the name. Those are European starlings. Both the house sparrow and the European starling are actually um, they're actually part of the problem. Both those species are were introduced from Europe and by well-intentioned, if uh, misguided people who were trying to, in the case of the house sparrow, they wanted to, to bring some, a, a bird that would be better at eating all the flies that were attracted to the horse manure that littered New York City's streets 100 years ago. Unfortunately for everyone, house sparrows, while they do eat some bugs, are primarily seed eaters, and so they weren't very effective at uh, eliminating all the flies. Um, but they have now spread um, throughout North America, and they compete with many native species for nesting sites. And the starlings do the same thing. The starlings are implicated in the decline of a number of woodpecker species. I also know that there are owls in New York City. You'll find them in Central Park. How are they faring? All owls are considered species of concern because they're very, very sensitive to human disturbance. They are off, are easily kind of chased from their roosting spots during the day by people, and yet many of them are doing okay at the moment. Glenn, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Glenn Phillips is with New York City Audubon. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.